We're in part three of a five-episode podcast on Episcopal beliefs and practices. Up next, it's basic beliefs. Thanks for joining us for the Church Next podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Church Next Podcast. My name is Chris Yaw, and I'm your host as we learn from gifted presenters on a variety of topics designed to help us grow in our spiritual lives. You're tuned into episode number 17. It's called Walk in Love, Basic Beliefs with Scott Gunn and Melody Shobe. Scott's an author, priest, and the head of Forward Movement. And Melody is also a priest, author, and popular speaker. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library over at churchnext.tv. You can find out more by going there. And if you'd like to support us, consider a $9 monthly subscription that will give you access to all of our individual and online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. The basic beliefs of the Episcopal Church are in many ways the same as those of any other Christian denomination. We all read the Bible, we all pray, we all believe in God's grace, and we all make statements of one kind or another about what we believe as Christians. Each denomination, however, takes a slightly different approach to the Christian basics. That's one reason that diverse denominations within the Christian Church have grown. Different approaches to the fundamental tenets of Christianity fit different people's approaches to faith. In this episode, Scott and Melody discuss the Episcopal Church's approach to four basic elements of our spiritual lives. The creeds, in which we state what we believe is a church, reading scripture, understanding good works in the context of God's grace, and prayer. Scott and Melody say that Creeds are not laws, but rather rules about faith. Creeds are, as the prayer book's catechism says, quote, statements of our basic beliefs about God. Why do we have these particular statements? Well, at various times, the church has been racked by controversy, and so its leaders have met to settle these basic questions of faith, and thus we have creeds or summaries of the faith. Creeds speak especially to those matters that were controversial at the time they were written, and most of these controversies were related to the belief in the Holy Trinity. Our creeds, therefore, speak mostly about God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Many other important items of faith are left out. Vital issues such as war and peace, the role of clergy and lay people in the church, protection of the vulnerable, or the sin of great wealth. Now, in this first talk, Scott discusses the two major creeds of the church. They're the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and what it means when we say these creeds in church together. Every Sunday when we gather for worship, at some point we say a creed. Creed is a word that comes from a Latin word, credo. It means, I believe. So, creeds are statements of what we believe. They're meant as summaries of our faith. They're not exhaustive. They don't list everything we believe. They're especially about how we think of God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit. But they don't cover things about how we live, um, should we go to war or not, all kinds of moral questions, even theological questions. The creeds are primarily concerned with how we think of and how we pray to the triune God. There are two creeds we typically use in the Episcopal Church. The Nicene Creed 
is the one we say on Sundays and major feasts at the Holy Eucharist. And the Apostles' Creed is a shorter creed that we use at baptisms, at funerals, and when we say the daily office. The Apostles' Creed is especially associated with baptism, so we use it on occasions when we want to remember baptism, especially. Both of the creeds are divided into three sections, and it won't surprise you to know that those three sections are, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. So one of the questions that comes up often when we start to talk about creeds is, do I have to believe everything that I say in the creeds? Am I required to believe this? Well, maybe a better way to think of it is to reframe it a little bit and to say that creeds are the collective statements of belief of the church. The version of the Nicene Creed that we use on Sundays usually begins, we believe. We're saying that we collectively, as the church, believe these things. They're the deposit of faith, the tradition, our inherited faith. And so they're things that the church is meant to teach and that we hope we believe. But of course, anyone who engages both their faithful hearts and their intellectual minds will have moments of doubting or wondering about things. Someone has said that one of the great things about being in a Christian community is that we can borrow faith from one another. So on the day when I'm wondering about some part of the creed, I may not be able to believe it, but I can borrow the faith of my neighbor and believe in it. I can borrow my neighbor's belief in that. And there may be another time when my neighbor is borrowing my belief. And so we look to the creeds as, as, as the faith that we strive to believe as the church. The creeds aren't just abstract theological ideas. They're also rooted in time, and they're rooted in time two ways. One way they're rooted in time is that they came to be at particular moments in the church's history when there were particular questions that the church had. The Apostles' Creed is generally thought to be a little older than the Nicene Creed, although not everyone agrees on exactly how old it is. But the Nicene Creed, we know a lot about its composition and origin. It, it began in in the fourth century with a meeting called by the emperor and was revised a little later in the fourth century. And the church together discerned what it might say in this creed. But the other way the creeds are rooted in time is that they remind us that our faith is rooted in a particular time and a particular place. The creeds mention that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. They mention the name of a historic figure so that we don't imagine that Jesus is a myth or a legend, but that Jesus is a real person who lived and died and rose again at a particular time, which helps our faith to know that God has been present in our world at a particular time and that God can be present in our time and that God will be present in the future. Scott and Melody like to say that the Episcopal Church is a Bible church. The Bible plays a central role in our beliefs and practices. Visit any Episcopal congregation on a Sunday and you'll see for yourself. We take reading the Bible very seriously. Our liturgy includes four different readings from the Bible, the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament, and the Gospel. After the Old Testament and the New Testament readings, we proclaim the Word of the Lord, which is a reminder that these are not just nice stories, but holy, inspired words from God. 
And the readings are not the only places in which we hear the words of Scripture. The words in our liturgy come from the Bible as well. About 70% of the Book of Common Prayer is biblical quotation. Not only does the prayer book include the entire book of Psalms, but many of the most beloved and beautiful prayers and responses in the liturgy are also directly from the Bible. As Episcopalians, the Bible saturates our liturgy from the scriptures we read to the scriptures that we say, and the Bible we find deeply ingrained in everything we do. In this next talk, Melody introduces the Episcopal approach to reading scripture and using it in our liturgy. So we've talked already about how Episcopalians are people of the book, specifically the Book of Common Prayer. But the Book of Common Prayer is not the only important book in our life and faith. Of course, we are also people of the Bible, the holy book of the scriptures. I occasionally get the question, is the Episcopal Church a Bible church? And the answer to that is absolutely yes, although maybe not in the way that people mean it when they ask me the question. The Book of Common Prayer itself is over 70% quotations from Scripture. It not only includes the entirety of the Psalms, but many of the words, prayers, and responses that we say are drawn directly from the Bible. Not only that, but we read a bunch of the Bible together when we worship as a community. In our service of Holy Eucharist, there are usually at least three, sometimes four readings, the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament epistle, and the Gospel, which is one of the stories from the life of Jesus. So Episcopalians are people who are saturated in scripture, in the words of the Holy Bible. The question is not whether or not we read the Bible, but how Episcopalians read the Bible. Often people ask me, do we read the Bible literally? The answer to that really is no, because no one reads the Bible literally. Jesus said, for example, in the Bible, I am the bread of life. We do not believe that Jesus was literally a loaf of bread. No one takes every word of scripture literally. But as Episcopalians, we do read the Bible seriously. We engage it as the word of God, and it is deeply important to our life of faith. So let's talk a little bit about how we read the Bible. We read the entire Bible. In fact, in our ordination service, every priest, every deacon, and every bishop signs a piece of paper that says, I solemnly declare that I do believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and to contain all things necessary to salvation. So we are people who read the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are people who read not just a verse or two, but the entirety of the Bible and understand that we need to see those verses in context to read what's around them, to see how the Old and New Testaments relate to one another and what they have to teach us when we read them together. Although we read the Bible as a whole, we also read it respecting the parts, because the truth is the Bible itself is actually a library of books. The Bible includes 66 different books written at different times, in different places, by different people. And all those different books are also different kinds of literature. Some are history and some are poetry, some are prophecy, and some are letters. We read the Bible respecting those different kinds of literature because understanding that helps us understand what the words mean and how they apply to our lives. We also read a Bible with an eye to those differences so that we can understand what God is saying, not in one place, but in the entire witness of Scripture. We also read those different pieces of literature not just as words, 
but as the word of God, that God speaks to us in and through the words of the Bible, even today. So it is one book with many parts, but all of those parts and the way they speak to us teach us about God, about God's call in and on our lives, and about who we can be as the people of God today. The most important thing about the Bible is that we read it, that we attempt to interact with this holy book so that we can discover God speaking to us there. Scott and Melody like to say that when we limit grace and salvation to life in heaven, a life free from sin and death, we only get part of the picture. The salvation of Jesus Christ is about eternal life in heaven, but it's also about eternal life that begins now. From the moment we receive God's grace, we're being saved from something and for something, filled with God's grace that enlightens our minds, stirs our hearts, and strengthens our wills. Our salvation is lived out in this world as well as in the world to come. The grace of God finds expression in the works that we do in God's name, not because we have to, but because we want to, and because God working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. In this third talk, Scott discusses God's grace and the Episcopal Church's sense of the connections between grace, sin, and good works. You might have had an experience like I've had. Walking down the sidewalk one day, a person has asked me, are you saved? Well, of course, for Episcopalians, the answer is yes, we are saved. But we need to think about salvation a little bit, which isn't something that, in my experience, we talk about enough in the Episcopal Church. Salvation, the word that we use in the Bible, is translated from a Greek word, sozo. And that word means salvation, redemption, to be made well, to be made whole. And so salvation is a little more complicated than we might be led to believe at times. Salvation isn't getting our ticket punched so that we can get into heaven. Salvation is participation in the eternal life of Jesus Christ that begins in this life and then continues forever. Our salvation begins in the baptismal font, and we hear, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Well, how are we saved? is a next logical question. Well, the first thing to notice is that we don't earn our salvation. It's not like the television show, The Good Place, where we try to rack up enough points to get on God's good side and earn our way into heaven. No, salvation is a gift. It's the free gift of God. And the theological word for that gift is grace. Grace is the free gift of God's love for us and for our salvation. The thing about grace is that it's kind of a countercultural idea. It's a free gift. It comes without strings. It's for everybody. It's not fair. That grace applies just as much to the person who comes to church every Sunday and tries to do everything right, and the person who goes to prison for something terrible, and turns to Jesus there. Grace is for everyone. So if salvation is a gift and grace is free, 
then why do we do good things? Well, the answer is that we do good things in response to God's grace, not to earn God's grace, but in response to God's grace. It's like getting a really nice gift, and when you get a really nice gift, you want to say thank you and do something nice back to the giver. And when we understand God's grace for us, when we experience God's grace for us, we want to give something back to God, to do right by God, to do good things, and to share that gracious gift with other people. And some of the ways we understand salvation is sometimes you hear people talk about being saved from things, saved from death, saved from sin, saved from our temptations, and all those things are true, but we're also saved for something. There's a positive affirmation of our salvation, our wholeness, and that wholeness is about living in the abundant eternal life that Jesus talks about. Not abundant because we have a lot of things, but abundant because we overflow with God's love and we can't help ourselves, but share it with those around us and with a world in need. So when someone asks you sometime soon, perhaps, are you saved? You'll know to answer, yes, I am saved. But as Anglican Christians, we understand salvation as something that we're working out with fear and trembling over and over again, day in and day out throughout our lives, as we experience a process of holiness throughout our lives, and we do good works not to earn God's love, but in response to God's love, and as we try to live into this calling of Jesus Christ to follow him and to share his love with others. So good works are not to spur God to refuse to dislike us, but good works are the fruit of good faith, and good faith is the fruit of our salvation, of our wholeness, of our redemption in Jesus Christ. Scott and Melody like to say that thinking about prayer as a conversation that takes place in relationship fundamentally changes the way that we approach prayer and changes what success, a successful prayer, looks like. So what if the goal of prayer is not simply to put in our money and get what we want, but instead to engage in real deep conversation with God, listening and talking, talking and listening. Then prayer works not when you get what you want, but anytime you engage in conversation, hearing and doing and listening and then finding relationship. There are many ways to pray. There are many outcomes to prayer and everyone's relationship with prayer is different. Much of prayer is beyond our knowledge or our control. In this final talk, Melody describes prayer and talks about different ways to engage in it. She talks about ways that people commonly reduce prayer to less than it is and ways to think about prayer that enrich our understanding of what it means to pray. Most importantly, Melody suggests ways to begin praying more often in different ways as engaging in prayer is an essential aspect of our spiritual lives. One of the hallmarks of the Christian life is prayer. We've been talking a lot about prayer so far, the prayers we find in our Book of Common Prayer, the prayer we experience together when we worship on Sundays and on other days during the week. But of course, we are called to be people of prayer not merely once a week or at one point in time in a day, but continually, to be praying always. So what exactly is prayer? The Book of Common Prayer tells us that prayer is responding to God by thoughts or by deeds, with or without words. 
that's a pretty broad definition. It encompasses things we say and things we do, anything we do that is a response to God. So what could that look like particularly in our lives? There are a lot of different metaphors we can use to say what prayer is like, but here is my favorite. Prayer is a conversation that takes place in relationship. So in a lot of ways, prayer with God is like my relationship with my husband. Sometimes we talk to each other. Sometimes we just spend time together not talking at all. Sometimes I thank him for things that he's done, or I ask him to do things for me. And sometimes he thanks me for things that I've done, or asks me to do things for him. Sometimes I give, and sometimes I take. Our relationship is built on all of those things. And our relationship would be in big trouble if it was only about one of those things. So too is our relationship with God. Too often we approach prayer in one of two ways. We either think of prayer as a vending machine. We put in our money, our prayers, and God gives us the thing that we want. Or we think of prayer as leaving God a voicemail. We leave a message for God and we wait for God to get back to us with a response. But neither of those things is really what prayer is like or about. If we think of prayer as a conversation that takes place in relationship, then we understand all the aspects of prayer, listening to God and talking to God, responding to God with words and responding to God with actions. Simply spending time with God in prayer builds the relationship we have with God. Prayer is just one of many spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines, things that we do in our Christian life to grow in relationship with God. Spiritual practices include things like prayer, reading and studying the Bible, and being generous or tithing, giving money to God in the work of God's kingdom. There are many different ways that we can grow in our relationship with God through spiritual practices. But the important thing is to do them. They're not always easy. Just like exercise, we get better and better the more that we practice. The more that we pray, the more that we read the Bible, the more that we give, we find that we grow those muscles and we find ourselves better able to do those things with and for God. But the important thing is to start somewhere and to try them. Trying to pray, trying to read the Bible, trying to give and be generous. The more we practice, the more we deepen our relationship with God. If you're looking for a new spiritual practice, there are lots of different ways to find one. You can talk to your priest or your spiritual director. You can look in our book for other resources, other ways to pray, or new ways to encounter God in scripture. We just hope you'll start somewhere. A couple of resources for you now if you're interested in going deeper. A couple of books. There's one called I Believe, Exploring the Apostles' Creed. It's by Alistair McGrath. It's from 1998. The Apostles' Creed for Today by uh, Justo Gonzalez from 2007. There's Marianne Mick's uh, book on loving the questions and exploration of the Nicene Creed. There's Opening the Bible with Roger Furlow, The Heart of Christianity by Marcus Borg, and What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey, a classic there. Um, and of course, there are several Church Next uh, classes you could take on the same subject as well. The Episcopal Tradition with Frank Wade, Introducing Episcopal Worship with Jim Hamilton, and uh, Roger Furlow again with Scripture and the Prayer Book.
And that's our podcast for the day. Thanks so much for tuning in. And again, if you want to know more about us, you can pop over to churchnext.tv. And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you and be with you this day and always. Amen.